This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Have you tried changing your health year on year, resolving that this year things are going to be different, but nothing seems to change? Oftentimes, when things are not changing, we're following many wellness myths and not looking at the full picture, including our nutrition, recovery, stress management, leaving out mind-body connection. I want to introduce you to Wellness Redefined, a new podcast from Refillion Media that's here to dispel all your myths about wellness and fitness while sharing stories of how we redefine what it means to be healthy. On each episode, we'll be talking to experts from all walks of life who will share their own unique wellness journey and offer their perspective. I am your host, Tamika Rochester, founder and CEO of Harlem Cycle a premier wellness space in New York City with a focus on indoor cycling. I've been an advocate for wellness since as early as I can remember. So if this sounds like something that could help change your life, go ahead and pause the show you're listening to and subscribe to Wellness Redefined on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Inclusive Collective, where we share stories and learnings of inclusive people, organizations, and innovation. I'm your co-host, Rob Hadley, a people and culture strategist specializing in DE&I and people analytics. I am normally joined by Nadia Butt, an organizational development and belonging strategist. Today, however, we have a treat for you all. Sitting in with the band in his sister's place is Asad Butt, founder of Refilion Media, host of the Invisible Hate podcast. He's our boss around here. Uh, <laughs> and you may also remember him from an earlier episode of Inclusive Collective. You may also know him from uh, several stints as an on-air reporter. Uh, but uh, Asad, what, what's going on? I've been a failure throughout my career until today, Rob. <laughs> until today on this podcast, finally things turn this around. Is it. Were, were you ever on-air in Boston? I was never on-air in Boston. I was on-air in Maine. Okay. In Buffalo, in Buffalo as well. Yeah. So I, I was a producer, behind the scenes kind of writer or assignment editor in Boston, and, and never really a, a reporter. You should time. see the local newscast in Utah. You would do. You... No, I, I I love local news. It's it's so exciting. <laughs> the, the 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 yeah everything. I'm the a music, huge fan. Like, yeah. Yeah. Get my sure, popcorn. Totally. So what? So yeah. Ozzy, you were here. Uh, I think over a year ago. Um, oh wow. I just wanted to just. Just check in. What's what all has gone on? You know, in addition to this huge uh, show that you have, uh, this collective. Yeah, um, sure. What else? Is, what else is happening? What's what's new? Yeah. So you know, I think for, for certainly from a Rafelion perspective, um, we, as you mentioned, we have this Invisible Hate podcast, which is yeah. for those that like true crime. We're really focusing on 
true crimes that are, are essentially hate crimes or potential mm -hmm. hate crimes. And the reason, Rob, that we're focusing on this is because, you know, hate crimes generally go vastly underreported and under prosecuted in the U.S. Some say upwards of a quarter million hate crimes occur every year in the U.S., but only like 10 or 15,000 get prosecuted. And so we kind of are looking at what's in that gap. You know, what are those cases that maybe should be prosecuted as a hate crime, but aren't? Mm -hmm. And why aren't they? And then we just, you know, we want to bring awareness to these crimes that are typically happening against minorities. So that's one big project. And then another big project, uh, really briefly, that that I think you'll like is that um, we've kind of been in a beta launch that we're launching kind of officially live later this month. We have a website called Fawn. Mm. Fawn in Arabic means art. And so we are cataloging all creative projects done by American Muslims, music, TV shows, movies, books, theater, um, and writing news and articles around that. And so uh, really just like a, we want this to be a central place where people that are interested in learning about what American Muslims are contributing to the arts and culture in America, they can go and find out about that. And so that website is createfun.com. Amazing. Amazing. Cool. Yeah. And I think, and I know that there's like, you know, probably half a dozen other things that you could. Uh, oh, all sorts of stuff. I mean, as you can see, I got my little right baby now. girl that we created as well. So, yeah. <laughs> Yes, we do have a coast, but you get, when we get to the uh, when we get to the video, we'll have to cut some video. But hopefully, she doesn't wake up as we're recording. Uh, yeah, exactly with, right today. <laughs> if you hear her, and uh, it, she's just the uh, yeah. And if she uh, does, that's cool too, right? Totally. So let's. So thanks again for co-hosting with me today. Let's talk about uh, we do this thing we call the the deets. Uh, the right? deets. So let's talk about a couple of different stories. Our first story today is in the context of a couple of things that we've been talking about recently, right? So. Uh, Anheuser-Busch backing down, reversing course after they aligned themselves with trans influencer Dylan Mulvaney. And then just last week, we learned about Target backing down and pulling some of their LGBTQ plus pride apparel from stores where conservatives had complained. The North Face, however, has been paying attention, apparently. The company has been featuring the drag queen Patty Gonya in a summer pride campaign. And when the company faced criticism from internet trolls such as Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert. They're also, I think, in their spare time, they're, they're U.S. Congress people. Um, the, the North Face stood firm, issuing a statement that they're proud of their association with this person um, and that the company has received praise from organizations like GLAAD for sticking with their pride campaign. I said, you're a business owner. You know, do you think businesses are learning from what they've seen this spring uh, with some of these um, anti-LGBTQ plus campaigns. <laughs> yeah, look, look, I think bottom line is I think obviously the North Face is getting it right. And I think that they're doing it partly, I think, because it's the right thing to do. And I think they're doing it partly because it's probably good for their bottom line, right? How many people in, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene's district are going to be wearing the North Face? I'm guessing not a lot. I'm guessing their clientele is mostly, you know, East Coast <laughs> and West Coast. And that's the cynic in me, right? But I Regardless, it's the right move for them and right move for humanity. And, you know, yeah. Well, Lauren Bomber is, all, is from Colorado. So I, I would expect there to be a little bit of North Face gear out in Colorado. Oh, that's uh, true. In, yeah, in you're mountains. right. Yeah, but, yeah. but, you know, I think the okay, one thing so, we yeah. know <laughs> we know is bad business is saying I'm for this. And then when you get pushed back, saying, oh, no, I'm sorry. Right, I, I'm right. not for this. You get to be in trouble with everyone at that point, right? Yeah, so we know that exactly, that's bad yeah, business yeah. in addition to not being the right way to go about doing things. And so, 
you know, this is proving out, I hope it's proving out a hypothesis that I have, which is that, you know, companies should be gaming out their response in advance. They know it's coming. Yeah, right. There's really no excuse. We know that conservative activists are going to show up either in stores or online. So be prepared because there's really no going back as we were just talking. Yeah, if, totally. If you commit totally. to it, you, you kind of have to go forward with it. Um, you know, it's to be almost like a, we don't negotiate with kidnappers type of line yeah, that agreed. companies have to have to take in here. So, yeah. um, no, that's a great point. Yeah. Um, all right. So next story, Equinox, the place that I would have always loved to work out, but could never afford to. <laughs> yeah. When I lived in Boston, uh, was ordered to pay a woman 11 and a quarter million dollars, a former employee for harassment discrimination. Wow. So a couple of interesting things in the article, then I want to get your response. So the article in the New York Times is where we saw this, talks about how the fitness industry is traditionally a place where people of color, women in particular, can make a good wage, but the management is mostly white and male. Mm. And then this case revolved around the actions of her subordinate, which I thought was really interesting. A white yeah, male that sure. often made comments about black female bodies, referred to non-white employees as lazy, and even wanted his manager, this woman, to help him pick up other women, uh, saying, you know, it'll, it'll help me to have you around me. And then, you know, there it's was wild. even this incident where she received a request for a white trainer, and that was, you know, very psychologically yeah. damaging for her as well. So um, you you read the article. What what what, what did you think about this Yeah, one? I mean, I, I think that they got it right, obviously, with the harassment and discrimination. I thought the uh, award that she was given, the 11 and a quarter million, I mean, woo, I mean, that is a... That is to me, that's a lot. And so, you know, what kind of precedent is that setting? I think questions that I have for you, Rob, in regards to this and as a business owner is like, I guess, how how much is or should a company be liable for the actions of one of their em employees? And, and, you know, presumably, you know, Equinox as a company doesn't condone any of this. Mm -hmm. And I guess was the end result because they took inaction or because this one employee in particular uh, or, or multiple employees collectively were harassing or discriminating. It's interesting to me, for sure. I would say I don't know what the number, I don't know what the right number is, right? So is, is 11 million the right number for pain and suffering? I, I have no idea. I have no idea how, how toward awards are, are determined, right? So we saw FedEx have to pay $360 million to yeah. a woman this past year for discrimination that was, uh, you know, that was sustained over a long period of time. And when you say that Equinox doesn't condone it, they say they don't condone it, right? And it's really in their policies Correct. that they don't condone it. But they, but based on the way that this, you know, and obviously the jury saw this, um, they did condone it, right? And it, it did happen yeah. repeatedly. It yeah. did, uh, it, it was something that was sustained over a long period of time. I thought it was interesting. I think that the fact that again that it was a subordinate, I think that's something that companies are not paying attention to, yeah, at that's all. True. And I think yeah. they should be now that this happened. Really I think smart. it'll be yeah. a big wake up call, and it could be the tip of the iceberg for this, right? I mean, you yeah, don't think about sure. the fact that your subordinates can make you uncomfortable or have an impact uh, on something like this in terms of discrimination and harassment. So, yeah, that was really interesting. Um, so yeah, so we'll we'll see it, and I think that uh, I think that the companies. It, again, it's it's just it's just the start. I think there's a lot of different places this could go. Talk about this on a couple of times where I think that there's just so much data that could be used against companies out there. Um, if 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 uh, plaintiffs knew where to look, 
Yeah, times. right. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, no. So, well, uh, thanks uh, so much, Asad. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll have our guest, Miriam Simantwala, the blind hijabi. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Inclusive Collective. Our guest today is Miriam Simantwala. Miriam is a first-generation immigrant who was the first in her family to complete college and graduate education. Her formative years as a youth activist and advocate for marginalized groups define her approach to collaboration, coalition building, and inclusion. Today, the first disabled Muslim-American female recipient of the George J. Mitchell Scholarship, Miriam's life experience includes representing American culture and values on three continents, and navigating war zones. She was the youngest person in the room drafting the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Miriam is a recovering lawyer and served as a congressional fellow and a government affairs strategist in the nonprofit sector before becoming the United States' first visibly disabled female diplomat of color in 2011. Although in her day job, she's the senior policy advisor in the Secretary of State's Office of Diversity and Inclusion, advising and creating policies. Today, she joins us as the founder of her own website that she recently launched called The Blind Hijabi and has a forthcoming podcast and lots of other projects, which I'm sure she'll tell us about. So, Miriam Simatwala, thank you so much for joining us. We're so happy to have you. Welcome to Inclusive Collective. Rob, thank you for having me and thank you to your team because it, you know, does take a team, a village to make these things happen, <laughs> as I well know. So, looking forward to the conversation. Excellent. Great. Mariam, uh, thanks for joining. Uh, my first question for you is around, you know, these multiple identities that you have, right? So uh, blind, hijabi woman, I believe Indian American, you know, in an inter-race relationship. You know, I, I, I wonder, you know, I guess my first question is like, what was it like for you when you first joined the workforce, going into the office every day? What kind of challenges did you um, encounter in in the workplace? I love that question because it gives me a chance to talk about something that I think people are afraid to talk about. And my motto, one of my mottos is be afraid and do it anyway. Hmm. And so I have been in situations where I've definitely been afraid. I've definitely been the only lonely. I've definitely been the only one in the room that is like me. Right? There's no one else quite like that there. Yeah, and right. that is something that I had to get comfortable with and something that I had to leverage. And so I really believe in the power of leveraging your identity because you're going to be memorable. You're going to, whether you want to or not, you're going to be seen and you're going to be heard. And so when you're going to do that because of these multiple identities that you have that are so different from what people might consider the norm, use that power, use that leverage that you have, because now you have suddenly the gift of privilege. And it's weird saying that, right? Like you think, oh, no, no, we associate privilege with white men. But I, I want to flip that for a second and say, no, when you are memorable and I perhaps uh, at times regret <laughs> that I am memorable. Uh, I am sure others around me at times regret, uh, you know, my husband being one who said, I, I don't really want to be famous, Marianne. I don't really want to be known. 
I don't really <laughs> want to stick out, <laughs> right? And so at times you regret wanting to be or becoming or being memorable. But I say use the privilege of being memorable to do good because now you have the privilege to elevate your voice, right? And the privilege to be heard. So you've now got the power to elevate your voice and you have the privilege to be heard because you're memorable. So use that power and use that privilege. That is, is something that I became very comfortable with very early. And, you know, if I may, I, I, you know, one story I'd, I'd like to tell is we were recently, my husband and I, we were in a course and we were in a foreign affairs counter threat course in my day job in which uh, you go to this, this town in, in Virginia and you spend time doing really interesting things that we in any of our day jobs probably don't do. But frankly, I think, you know, we should all learn to do uh, like learning how to use a first aid kit and plugging a wound that might be bleeding. Right. Yeah. Or uh, in an instance of gun violence, which is is so sadly rampant uh, these days, it's not something I grew up with. You know, I grew up in the generation before Columbine and so, you know, learning how to, if somebody gets shot, you know, how, how are you going to assist them in that moment and, and try to uh, take the steps needed before help arrives, before professional mm -hmm. emergency responders arrive? In our context, in my day job context, it's more like getting away from a vehicle that might be attacking you in a car, mm -hmm. right? And so I'm sitting behind the driver or next to the driver. And I'm not driving because I'm blind. Right? How am I going to take over the car if the driver gets shot? And nobody would think a blind person's going to say, teach me how to do that. But yeah. both my husband and I said, teach me how to do that. And our instructors were marvelous. They were absolutely marvelous. They said, yeah, let's figure it out. Let's do that. And so I have never driven a car really in, in my life, but I learned how to go from the drive gear to neutral to park. I also mm -hmm. learned about how to pedal the gas and speed away <laughs> to, you know, steer. And, and, and the idea was, let's suppose that the driver next to me is injured, but can still see. How can I then assist in that moment? Let's suppose the driver next to me suddenly has a uh, a medical emergency and cannot drive. How do I safely, you know, pull the car over or at least get it to stop so I'm not continuing, you know, to propel the car forward, right, and, and crash? Uh, right. So, I, I mean, just learning those skills, which seem a bit uh, scary and, and, and situations that seem far-fetched. I mean, that's where I say be afraid and do it anyway, right? And, and so whether you're in a boardroom whether you're briefing in uh, a presentation, whether you're in a car and, you know, you're in a country that, you know, has some actors that are less friendly to, to you. <laughs> You've got to know how to think in that moment. And as my instructor said, there are only really two ways to go, forward or backward. Stopping is not an option, right? Uh, yeah. there's, there's two ways to do this. You've got to go forward or you've got to go backward. And either one can be right or wrong in the moment, but whatever keeps you alive is the right answer. And so that's, right. you know, it comes down when you have multiple identities, it comes down to resilience in order to survive. And I think that 
what I am trying to do through the blind hijabi is tell the story of resilience in all of us, tell the story of power and privilege in all of us, because all of us can find power in our identities. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to I wanted to talk about the blind hijabi. Um and I loved and everything that you just said, there's about five or six things that I like <laughs> that I really I know. loved. I want to know your driving stories. That's what I want to know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you have, you, we have any video of that? We do, actually. I will share it with you. No, it's, it's, it's public. Let's share uh, it. Let's, yeah, I'll absolutely amazing. share it with you. <laughs> there's also a video of me like beating up a dummy. Sorry. There's also a video of me beating up a dummy very <laughs> oh, vigorously. Nice. So amazing. I, I don't think I'm, I did a very good job, but I want to become a diplomat. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Is this what you do as a diplomat? Is this, so, you have to. People ask me. Actually, I spoke uh, in my day job at a conference. I, I they first introduced the video, and then me. And I said, I just want to tell you, this is not what I do in my day job every day. Uh, I'm sure that in all of our workplaces, there are moments in time when we wish we could do that, but we let the better angels of our spirits reign, and you know, uh, call our. Patience. This is where I think my faith plays a pivotal role because I, I think one of the gifts that I, I, uh, you know, have also decided to leverage is the gift mm -hmm. of my faith, and I wear a particular outfit that reminds me of my faith and my values every day, so that when I have those moments of wanting to blather four-letter words that are not polite and should not be said in polite company. I, you know, have a moment of reflection and introspection and, you know, try to call the better angels of my spirit. Are you, are you saying as a Muslim, I shouldn't be swearing? Oh, no. I am not commenting on that. I am not telling <laughs> one from one Muslim to another. I will not tell you how to live your faith. It is it, to each their own. <laughs> and that's inclusion, right? That, that's the spirit. I mean, what are we talking about? We talk about inclusion. It doesn't look cookie cutter or the same for one person, whether you're Muslim whether you're blind, whether you're a person of color, whether you're LGBTQI+, you know, each of us has our own experience in that identity and our own story in that identity. And through the blind hijabi, I'm going to tell mine. And I'm hoping that I'll get to share others who want to share theirs. So you had this interesting career. You obviously You've been all over the world. You have all these stories. Obviously, you can pretty much tell a story about anything in any situation. And so, you know, you've been in a place like so State Department and it's, you know, you're kind of behind the scenes doing things. And so what made you decide that this is the time to be more outward and be more forward about the things that you believe and, and start to express yourself in an outward fashion? I think that's a great question. And I think that's a... It's a personal choice. It mm -hmm. is something that my family and I wrestled with because, as I said, I'm already memorable enough. Do I really want to be more public facing? I mean, in, in a sense, you're right. In the State Department or in my day job, I'm behind the scenes as a lawyer, uh, you know, at a big firm. I was, as an associate, certainly more behind the scenes. Even, uh, you know, on the Hill as, as staff, as a fellow, I was behind the scenes. The forward facing person is the senator right? Or the, the member. And so why be more forward-facing? And my answer to that question is representation matters. Representation matters a lot. My sister said something to me that I uh, won't forget. 
and that really moved me. She said, there are moms somewhere in some corner of the world, uh, in, in, in South Asia, in the Middle East, in Africa, in the Western Hemisphere. There are kids and whether they have disabilities or whether they're moms of kids with disabilities or whether they're just moms of little girls, you know, or moms of kids who are, quote unquote, different, they're going to look at you and they're going to derive a sense of hope. And I thought mm-hmm. that was a little daunting, a little profound, a little scary. <laughs> and I said, oh, I want to be in the bed because, you know, my husband put it best when he said, you know, we often get the statement, oh, you're an inspiration or your story is so inspirational. And my husband said, I show up to be inspirational. I just show up. And that's it. I think for me, the project, I called the blind hijabi a bit of a project because it is. It's, it's the project of storytelling. And what I'm hoping to do is not just tell my story, but in the future, tell the story of others tell the story of respect for human difference and human dignity, because actually, when you strip away the blind and you strip away the hijabi, you're just left with the. And the could be about anything. Anyone. Rob, it could be about you. Yeah. Asad, it could be about Even you. Even me. Right. Yeah, it could be about anybody, right? Like, and, and you could be non-disabled, which is a temporary condition, because sure. I think the only uh, permanent condition, especially as we age, is disability. Right. Twenty five percent of Americans are are individuals with disabilities. But the sad thing is over 66 percent of working age Americans with disabilities don't have a job. Don't have a job. Right. And if we're there, I shudder to think where the rest of the world is. And I know from experience and from my travel and from stories that that. You know, we've got a long way to go. So how do we change that narrative? How do we flip that narrative? The blind hijabi is about changing and flipping not just that narrative, but the narrative of power and privilege by saying, look, we're all memorable. We've all got a voice. We've all got to use it. We've got to deploy it. And we've got to use it effectively in the moment. And I don't always use it effectively in the moment. So one of the conversations I'm having with myself and with others on the blind hijabi is, what are the mistakes I've made? And how do I learn to fail up? How do I learn from my failures? Because the other thing that tends to happen with people who have multiple identities and who are memorable because of those identities, unfortunately, is, because, is that every mistake they make is magnified in a microscope. Right, right. right. And that's scary. And I said recently, I said imposter syndrome is real. It never goes away. And I truly believe that. You know, I truly believe that no matter where I'll go and what I'll do and what next I will do and what I will become, because evolution is constant and transformation is necessary. I will continue to feel in some way, shape or form like, do I really do this right? Do I really fit here? Do I really belong? And that's a question that we will all in some way, shape or form perennially wrestle with. Even you, Rob. (laughs) And I'm sure. sure you do. And I'd love to hear uh, how you yeah. wrestle with that, right? People just openly tell me wanna, that I'm an no, imposter. You, you know just come right out and say it. I'm sure they do because one of the, one of the first posts I wrote is middle-aged white man has thoughts. And people thought, oh, what's she going to say? That's 
And and the funny thing was, middle-aged white man has thoughts was actually about people like you, Rob, who are people who are true allies. Mm-hmm. And how those allies have been immensely important in my life and how they can be important in other people's lives. The work that you're doing here on the Inclusive Collective, the stories you're telling, the data you're sharing, the awareness you're raising, you're doing that as, and now I can't see you, so I'm going to make some assumptions, (laughs) but I'm guessing a middle-aged white man who has a lot of important and good thoughts. You're you're going to make Rob cry now. I I I don't know. Yeah, it's, I'm not uncomfortable with the middle-aged part, but yes, but I know, but yes, I definitely, that's one of the parts of my identity I don't like to talk about either. I love with you. I love, I love where you went with that though, because it's definitely, you know, the one thing I would say though, is I definitely, I think imposter uh, syndrome is, is real for everyone. The one thing that I don't have in addition to that is the burden of feeling like if I mess something up, that I'm messing it up for people that will come behind me or, you know, people that, that look like me. Right. Like I think that that's, that's that's where the differentiation is for me that I think is very, you know, that's an important distinction. So I think you're right about that. And I think that's why the allyship is so important, right? That's why you speaking up and speaking out for those, particularly those who fail and saying, you know what, if I did that, you wouldn't judge me as harshly. So why are you judging her as harshly? I think that's a key intervention that, you know, you can make and that others around you would then learn from and say, you know what, I can do that and I should do that. And and I think we as women often are guilty of of judging other women harshly. I certainly was judged harshly by other women, right? Like, you need to be better. You need to be softer. You need to. And I remember this, especially in the law firm world, seeing this a lot, uh, you know, female partners who said, well, I climbed up the ladder, so you should suffer and do it too and <laughs> suffer just like I did. And my attitude is, I want to make it easier for those who come after me and take that you know, burden of feeling like, oh my God, I am going to fail or I failed and I'm going to be judged. I want to take that burden. I can't take it completely away, but I want to talk about that burden and make it a little lighter and say, you know what? Others feel that too. You're not alone. And that is also part of what the blind hijabi is trying to do. So it's really an open conversation. It's really a, a conversation so that People can see themselves represented, you know, represented in multiple identities because, you know, no one identity is going to take precedence in a given moment. Yeah. Um, We are running out of time, but I had one question that I wanted to just get your thoughts on. And that was one of your early blog posts. You kind of you said, I'm going to quote you to you, that you're very comfortable with confusion, even chaos and trying to help people through it. And and I. I guess, I, you know, I'd love a little bit for you to expand on that a little bit, um, but also, like, I think that's just generally such a optimistic view of uh, humanity and people and uh, generally shows kind of a uh, an understanding that, you know, like, yeah, we're going to mess things up and, you know, people are going to try to, hopefully people want to learn from their mistakes and, and, and the confusion and the chaos, but maybe just expand on that very briefly. Yes, I, I absolutely will. So I... Uh, you know, I'll give you a very real example that sort of connects it all together in one sense, right? I am a person of faith. When I grew up, we didn't use pronouns. Today we do. 
And today it is becoming more and more common to state your pronouns. And people have had the conversation about, well, why are we using they for one person? And ultimately it's about live and let live, right? And it's, it's about allowing people to be comfortable in whatever their identity is. And is there confusion for one particular person as an individual who grew up with a certain set of beliefs and values in that? There might be. Do you find that a bit chaotic? Perhaps at times, even I do. But we have to get comfortable with that. We have to be accepting of that. Not, I mean, people will say this a lot. It's not just about tolerance. It's about acceptance. Not just about tolerance or acceptance. It's about embracing human difference Hmm. and valuing it and saying, what does this person who comes to me with whatever their pronouns are bring to the table in terms of perspective, value creation for my company, my uh, workspace, my friendship, you mm-hmm. know, any of those a- arenas. And that's a difficult place to find ourselves in at times uh, when we are reconciling or, or trying to figure out what our faith teaches us. But ultimately, what our faith teaches us is be good people, treat people kindly, treat people with respect and dignity. And when we get to those core values, it becomes very easy. And that's, you know, uh, why I say I'm confused, you know, I'm comfortable with confusion and chaos. I'm also in a very logistical sense, comfortable with confusion and chaos, because, you know, I would love to have control of every variable. Uh, My (laughs) husband will tell you that. (laughs) But I can't. I can't. I mean, you know, whether you look at my personal life or my professional life, you know, I rely on other people for support because I am in a very visible way, apparent way, interdependent, but really all of you are interdependent, right? I mean, you're depending on someone to do something. You're depending on the mail carrier to show up that day with your uh, tax uh, bill for your property. And if the person doesn't or they lose it, you may not get it and you may be late paying your property tax. So you don't think about the fact that you're interdependent on that person. But you are. I am interdependent on on people. I'm on my Uber driver to show up and find me and identify me on my human reader um, who assists me. Uh, you know, I, I'm interdependent on a range of folks. And sometimes they can't be relied on either because I misjudged who they were or because life happened to them. And what happens in that moment? There's confusion and chaos. Okay, the thing or the action or the person that I was dependent on, the tool failed me. Now what do I do? And you just have to work through it, you know? Rob, and so that's why Rob I said I'm, me I, yeah. I fail them all the time. <laughs> so so that's what I mean happened. by, yeah, yeah. by con- you know, comfortable with confusion and chaos. I mean, unfortunately, that's the world we live in and, and increasingly so, right? Increasingly, we live in a more complex world uh, that is going to challenge us with things like the proliferation of artificial intelligence, uh, the proliferation of autonomous cars, uh, you know, all kinds of things are going to challenge the way that we think, that we work, and that we experience each other, and that we experience life. And that is going to cause confusion and chaos. And in that moment, we have to recenter ourselves through our values. I love that. 
again, so many great things, Mary. I think we, I think we need to do, you know, two or three episodes with you because I think you've <laughs> yeah. uh, got a, so so many uh, little pearls of wisdom that uh, that we can grab onto. And so I really appreciate it. I want to encourage all of our listeners to to uh, check you out at theblindhijabi.com. And then we also ask our guests, is there any resources that you think they should be, uh, that, that the audience should be paying attention to? Any Anything you're reading or books or podcasts that, uh, that you're a fan of, um, uh, either in the world of uh, disability inclusion or uh, religious inclusion as well? So I, I love that question. I, I will say... Th- the two books that I recently have recommended to folks, one is not new and one is fairly recent, about two years old. The first is called Being Human, and it's an autobiography of one of my very dear friends and mentors who recently passed away, Judith Human, who mm-hmm. was known as the mother of the disability rights movement. And some of the things that she talks about uh, you know, the othering she experienced, the fact that she was called a fire hazard because she happened to use a wheelchair and wanted to teach elementary school kids or because she just wanted to enter a classroom as a kindergartner and wanted to be taught herself, right? Those are things that haven't necessarily changed sufficiently, but that are slowly changing. And what I think is so important is the, the book tells us that systems, structures, bureaucracies will try to wear you down and wear you out. How do you keep hope? How do you keep optimism? How do you build resilience? That's what I think that book sort of reminded me of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I thought that was useful for anyone, disabled or non-disabled, uh, to check out. The second book has uh, nothing to do with inclusion in a direct sense. It's called Difficult Conversations. And I really like that book because, uh, Rob, I've heard you say it before on on the Inclusive Collective, but speaking about equity, inclusion, et cetera, is actually just talking about good management and good leadership Mm. and good communication is what I would add. And so I think it's just a useful tool for communication And I read it when I was in law school in a mediation course because you want to learn how not to be or come across as adversarial in a very adversarial environment, right? Law schools, law practices by its nature designed to be an adversarial environment. And and I thought that book was valuable for that reason, difficult conversations. And of course, check out www.theblindhijabi.com and at The Blind Hijabi on Instagram and Twitter and the Facebook page, and, you know, we will continue to expand. But one of the ways that, that I will expand more effectively is if I hear from others on what they mm. need and how I can be receptive to their thoughts and needs. And so I'd love comments and feedback. Okay. Thanks so much All for right. having me. I've had such a blast. Thank, Walla, you. thank you so much for joining us on Inclusive Collective. We'll be right back to wrap up with our car reflections and rants and raves. Hi, welcome back to Inclusive Collective. We just finished chatting with Miriam Simantwala and Asad. So it's fun to have you here. One of the reasons I thought you would be a great guest host with Nadia Out of Town 
and uh, some of our listeners may not know this, is that you also are host of the American Muslim Project podcast. Yeah, totally. That was that you hosted, right? So you talked about a lot of, you talked with a lot of leaders, personalities, uh, folks in the Muslim immigrant community. And so I, you know, just wanted to tee it up for you. So after our conversation with- Yeah, I mean, just a fascinating story. I mean, you know, we only scratched the surface on her experience and we brought it up earlier in the conversation, just like her outlook on life. I feel like for a lot of people, um, they don't want to answer the questions or have those tough conversations and they they put it on the other person to, you know, go out and learn about me or, or my my issues or my, you know, my background, my identity and, and all, all my history. And I just love this kind of her approach of like, yeah, it's it's going to be confusing. It's going to be chaos. But, you know, she's there to like help people, you know, guide people through and answer questions along the way. So what did you think? Uh I, I love that piece as well. I, if I, even from the first part of the conversation where she talked about using the fact that you're memorable in order to give yourself privilege or to provide space for you uh, as, as well. And so I, I thought that she had a lot of fresh perspectives and, you know, and looked at things differently, looked at things, I think is the, way, right, is the right way to say it, um, in terms of just you know her identity and using it as a as a differentiator and, you know, obviously his super impressive career and background and looking forward to all the great things that she does and produces with her, her new project, Blind and Jobby. Yeah. I, I feel like the future of uh, the world is in good hands if she's, you know, one of the people that, <laughs> that's leading the way, you I, know, so. <laughs> so, so many questions about her role at the State yeah. Department, right? Yeah, but right. Exactly. I, yeah. I, you know, so we'll, yeah. we'll clear. We need to clear it with the Biden administration, and then we'll have her back, and we can just talk about all these things. Everything, from the State Department. Stuff, yeah. yeah, I'd like to hear about her time working in the State Department under uh, President Trump as well. Yeah, so we'll, right. yeah let's, let's of, get her back for things. that. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's close it out, Asa. Thanks again for doing this. Let's rant and rave. I'm gonna. I, I got a long. Uh, I got a long rant here. Oh, amazing! You'll give me yeah. a little bit of time. So a few it. things about that I want to say about this article that came out, I sent it over to you, uh, it was from the Atlantic Monthly. And I think we'll be talking about, I think the DEI community will be talking about it a lot. So, uh, you know, first of all, just as a premise, right? So the DEI field, when I first started, it struck me as something that was much too wedded to training to be impactful, right? Yeah. I thought that it was too reliant on training. I didn't feel like there's enough focus on data, on strategy, and on impact. And that's what led me into this work. And so- yeah. And, and, you know, and, and my co-host, Nadia, uh, who's normally here, she, you know, she's a learning development specialist. And she also says that you can't rely on training to solve all your problems, right? And so she's very fond of saying that. But that said, the piece that came out from The Atlantic, you know, which had the main point that DEI, the industry itself, is ineffective, was garbage. It was, a, yeah. I thought it was an <laughs> awful piece. Yeah. It was lazy. I thought it was intellectually dishonest. And it was a big, wet French kiss to right-wing legislators yeah, that sure. want to, uh, you know, across the country that are working to make DEI go away, right? And so, um, you know, you know, so why was it trash, right? So two quick things, and then I, have, I have many more, and I'll probably oh, go let's into talk another 25 minutes on this. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> but um, it equates DEI consultants with anti-bias and diversity training, uh, which, yeah. right, so it... And it's too lazy to make that distinction, whether the writer and the editors did not understand that distinction or were too lazy to 
to seem like they needed to, to go into some DEI training themselves. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, exactly. Well, well, he also complains about the fact that he had to sit through it. So I mean, like this, oh, yeah. is, this is who we're dealing with in the writer. But so training is a piece of an overall consulting puzzle, right? So consulting is you're trying to develop strategy, you're trying to make things better, you're trying to introduce, trying to create equity in the workplace and better work environments. It's a piece of it. It's not the entire industry. I thought it was just incredibly lazy. And then it also makes the point, so one of the premises is that the response to the George Floyd murder should never have been to work to create equity inside of corporations, but rather the focus had been on helping poor people. And so stop right there. Like we live in the United States of America, right? Like everything about our country is corporatist. Yeah, right. Everything revolves around corporations. If you remember, Mitt Romney wanted to make corporations people in 2012. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right. He loved his corporation. Yeah. You know, I spent a lot of time in corporations, as you know. You know, I, I always tell my wife, who's always been uh, a healthcare worker, that there's people inside those big gray boxes that we call corporations. They make $150,000 a year and they can't even tie their shoes, right? Yeah, like right, they, right. For sure. and I'm not speaking euphemistically, like, oh, they're really bad at their job. Like, no, they actually can't even tie their shoes. Yeah. And they make $150,000 a year, right? And so these are the jobs that so overwhelmingly go to unimpressive white men, right? So that's who's overrepresented in those roles. And those are the types of roles you need if those, in order to lift people out of yeah, poverty right, right. to the middle class, from the middle class to the upper middle class, and then yeah. finally uh, to, to, to the wealthy, right? These are the roles that allow you to buy a Tesla, right? Yeah, yeah, and you right. need those to be distributed equitably. To say that this is not important and created equity in society is to not understand American society or the disparities that exist within those corporations. Yeah. So I'm going to have so much more on this, Asad. I Yeah, I, no. I, I thought it was can I, can I ask one question or maybe it'll lead to an additional rant, but like, aren't, you know, it said $24 billion is being spent on initiatives and whatnot. Aren't we like just in the early innings of this whole thing? Like, like doesn't transformation and change take a while or, or like i guess i guess were, were these leaders thinking that like overnight you know they would change hundreds of years of uh, systemic racism and all sorts of issues there's a kernel of right so in, in terms of the argument i mean so there's the, this piece where people within the dei industry think that there's things that could be done better right and so like yeah. if there's one criticism it is that leaders decided that we were going to throw money at the problem through a lot of the things that the writer points out, right? Sure. And, and we're going to do bias training and we're going to, you know, we're going to spend a lot of money and we're going to give a one hour seminar or a half day seminar and people are going to go back to their desks and that's going to change things. And so that, it, that is fair game, right? And so that is laziness from corporate leaders that I think that you know, it's, it's justifiable to criticize that. However, like you say, that is the starting point. And, you know, we're getting a heck of a lot smarter in how we attack inequity within corporations. And, and it talks about how much money is being made. It, 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 it's expensive. I can tell you, I meet a lot of folks that work in this industry. There's no big DEI bag, like, waiting for you, right? Like if you, yeah, right, like, right. Yeah. Um, you know, I can count on, you know, one hand. And I, and I mean, like, there's literally one person I've met in my work that I felt was disingenuous yeah. in what we're trying to do. Most people are working really hard to try to make change. And so, um, yes. Yeah, so yeah, it did I lead to also, another rant. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, I think also, as we find out from our story at the top, like not investing in this is also expensive in terms of lawsuits and 
just being a shitty corporate employer and all sorts, you know, all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. You got to, you oh, got to, oh, yeah. Thanks, oh, my, sorry. Sorry. Me let me, let me just, yeah. We're still, let me, let me cool, cool down a, a little bit. That's uh, quite an emotional show today. Um, yeah, no, my, I think my rave is a little bit simple. Uh, you know, so over here at Rebellion, we're holding a screenwriting contest um, for scripts by uh, American Muslims. And, you know, I think our estimates were like, you know, we kind of threw this together and put it out there over the course of a month. We were thinking maybe there'll be a dozen. And so far, like deadline is today, actually. And so far, you know, we have almost 30. So, you know, we could have upwards of 50 scripts. And so it's just really exciting for us that there's so much talent out there that's really interested in what we're trying to do and want to get the stories out there about the American Muslim experience. So that to me is a rave is just like there's this community out there that's like really excited to be heard. That is so cool. And you got some favorites in there so far? I haven't read them. <laughs> I was waiting for most of them to come in and then, you know, yeah. well, on vacation. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll sit down and read them all. So. Yeah, let's let's option this. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Asad. Really appreciate you joining me on behalf of your sister, Nadia, today. If someone's going to replace Nadia, it has to be someone who's related to her. <laughs> the family, right? yeah. yeah, it's got to be maybe, within maybe, the family. Maybe my parents will actually listen now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, excited. But let's just have everyone. Yeah. All right. Inclusive Collective is a production of Refillion Media. We'd love to hear from you. Send us your feedback at inclusivecollective at refillion.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. If you like what you heard, please be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to get in touch with us for consulting, check out my best friend, Nadia, at nazconsultants.com and myself, Rob, at ticanoconsulting.com. Thanks again to our guest, Mary Simantwala. And thanks to you, uh, my guest host, Asad But Nadia will be back next week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks.